Well, good morning. Thank you, Joe. Good morning. <laughs> I know it's the day after Christmas. You were probably worn out from all of the activities and all of the celebrations. And how many people had a house full of children? A few. Yeah, you. That's just every day for you folks. Amen. But it's uh, it's great for you to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Uh, I see some children are going to be dismissed at this time. Is that right? All right. Well, God bless them, and God bless those who are with them as. They will be studying God's Word and listening to Bible stories and, and learning from God's presence there. Amen. Amen. We have several families uh, who are uh, either sick still, um, and I assume a family or two may be traveling or have family somewhere. So our numbers are a bit lower this morning than normal, but Friday night was a wonderful time of worship, wasn't it? Amen. Christmas Eve, I mean, we were... We were before the throne of God Friday night, as it should be on Christmas Eve. Amen? And uh, we will do that again every year. So that's our that seems to be our tradition now. Um, we've been doing this now for five years. Was that our fourth or fifth? I forget. Regardless of what it is, it was a great time. It was a great time. Uh, this morning, following the celebration of our Lord's birth in Bethlehem, uh, I, I felt it appropriate to... Just continue one more theme here, one more reflection upon God entering into humanity. And I want to do this, I felt it appropriate to reflect upon Psalm 115 as this psalm helps us to reflect upon the providence and the sovereignty of God, even in His interaction with His creation. Um, This hymn of praise It urges God's people, those whom God chooses to be His own. This this psalm encourages them to trust and to worship Him alone. We need that. We We must be reminded from God's Word who we worship and why. And we're reminded as we read this wonderful psalm that God alone is worthy of our deepest devotion. Would you agree? He's worthy of that. And I think especially coming through the Christmas season, it's important for us to be reminded of that in God's Word today. And then next week, I I plan on as we go into January and into the new year, I want us to go back to Matthew's Gospel and continue in chapter 13 where we left off before this Advent season. Um, Let's begin our time today in reading God's Word. So if you're able to stand, let's stand And read Psalm 115. The psalmist begins this wonderful song, this hymn, by saying, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Verse 9, 
O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we pause at the reading of your word. And I thank you for the gift of this psalm as you are reminding us where our worship and devotion lies. We praise you, Lord, this morning as we should, and we thank you for reminding us of where that devotion lies. You are faithful to us. You do as you please, and it pleases you to love us. And likewise, Father, we return that with worship and praise. So, Lord, this morning I pray that you would be in this room with us, that you'd speak to us in your word, that you would settle our minds that you'd settle our hearts. But Lord, I pray this would be a time that you encourage and edify us so that we will be your people and that we will worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you. This is an interesting psalm. And you're saying, well, Pastor, how is this a Christmas psalm? Well, any time that we are reflecting on God's sovereignty and His glory And anytime we reflect on his sovereignty and his power over all of his creation, both heaven and earth, that is Christmas. As we look at this psalm here, we see or we're reminded that God alone is worthy of our praise. No other God and no other worldly distraction. Both are the same. No other God and no other worldly distraction is worthy of our devotion. None. And the psalm brings this truth home. There are these worldly distractions that that confuse us and cloud our thoughts and our souls. These are merely idolatrous replacements. That's a big word. They're idols. And they replace God's presence in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, right? Because... There is only one true God who is our maker and our redeemer, yet the very heart of man's sin is that we make our own gods and replace our maker with what we make. And no other time is this more important to remember than during the commercialized Christmas season that we now have. And I even say that with with caution because it's not something new that the commercialization of the Christmas season is here. It's not just a 20th century thing. It's just a new form of what's always been around. When we talk and we, well, when we read and we look back on uh, the, the great Puritan faith, 
they really wrote against and preached against celebrating Christmas. Yet they did not come against Christmas. They came against the drunken, vile celebrations that Christmas had become. They still worshiped our Lord and remembered the holiness of Christ's birth. They were just calling for a more holy devotion to that night. The context of this psalm contains a history of temptation to worship other gods, the gods of pagan nations who would oppress and take captive God's people Israel. This is the context here of Psalm 115. We can imagine that this song came out of a history and a, a of a people who would be thrown into captivity, but also had a, had a history before God sent them out into exile for embracing pagan gods as well. It became a, a problem. It was a consistent problem. The congregation who would be singing this psalm would have been struggling to grasp the hopelessness of serving these idols. Because deep down if, if in our hearts, anything that we replace God with whether we acknowledge it or not, we are struggling with the hopelessness that worshiping false gods brings. That's why we are torn. That's why the sinner who is not placing God where God belongs, who is not humbling themselves before the sovereign power and majesty of our creator God, they are struggling in their hearts because they have replaced the truth for a lie. And we see this here in this psalm, don't we? God's people are tempted by pagan gods. That's a reality of the life of the faithful. We are tempted by pagan gods. Anybody here confess to that this morning? Amen. What we see here in this psalm is a psalm of confidence. A, a psalm of confident faith. Faith that is not confident is faith that is not worthy of our Creator God. It portrays a community of worshipers who are declaring hope in God. At the same time, they're struggling with the influence of these dead and lifeless idols of the pagan nations. And there's this tension between that and the truth of the sovereign power of the living God. Notice the contrast here. You have a living God here and we have dead idols here. Very important themes. So let's take a look at this. Verse two. Actually, verses one and two. Verse one begins here. The, 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 the prayer starts out this way. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. That's the opening theme that will go throughout this humble psalm. It, 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 how many of us have this as our prayer? Not me, Lord, not me, you. Not me, Lord, you. Why not me? Because I am 
broken and I am powerless and I am sinful. But why you, O God? Because of your steadfast love, your chesed, your consistent presence and love and devotion and your faithfulness to your people. You are faithful. I mean, one of the things that we are praising God for in verse one is his faithfulness. God is always dependable. God is never abandoning his people. God says it, he does it. If he promises it, he fulfills it. He's never left his people. That's why in verse 1, not us, O Lord, not us, but your name give glory. That's where the glory lies. This psalm begins with a proclamation to shift glory away from the self and to place glory where it rightly deserves to be. Amen? Do we, how many of us must confess after the Christmas season that we have taken God's glory and put it where it does not belong? In the material stuff? In the busyness of the season? We have, I mean, how many Christian families this morning are not even in church because they are exhausted from the busyness of the season? And I doubt that many of those Christian families even once thought of God in the midst of it. See, glory comes from the Lord alone. Any glory expressed by the created is actually a vain glory. We are the created. Any, any glory that we place upon ourselves is vain glory. It is in the wrong place. But as we are all in this fallen state, as all of us carry this original sin from the original first man and first woman, we all must learn this lesson. I think it's a, it's a lesson we all struggle with. Glory is not ours to claim. Amen? Glory is not ours. God alone deserves all the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. That's the center of our faith. That's the center of Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. Why are we here? Sovereign Grace means sole deo gloria. To God's, to God deserves the glory alone. Amen. That's it. The psalm opens with a prayer for the Lord's help. That's why this psalm is so important. It is a real realization and an acknowledgement. I need help, Lord, to you deserve the glory, not me. It's a prayer asking God to protect his reputation. Dear God, protect your glory, your reputation among the nations. And again, I, I've really learned to love and appreciate the King James. Every time in the Psalms that modern translations speak of the nations, the King James calls them the heathen. Look it up. It's there. There's some truth to that, isn't it? It's a call for the Lord to act on behalf of his people. It's a call for the Lord to act on behalf of Israel in order to glorify himself. This is not a self-centered prayer, not whatsoever. And we can learn from this psalm this morning that even as we are studying scripture ourselves, why do we always take the Bible studies and apply it to me and me alone? Got quiet in here, didn't it? See, the Bible studies that we have are not about us. The Bible studies we have, we are looking to see what God is saying about himself here. 
Now, it applies to his people, but we must understand what the scriptures are saying about God first as he reveals himself in his word. That's the focus. That's where the glory lies. If we take a Bible study and turn it into a discussion about me and my feelings and never once talk about the scriptures, we are shifting the glory from God to us. This is not a self-centered psalm. It's not a self-centered prayer. It's, it is a prayer. It's an exercise in faith. It is a focus of glory upon the one who is worthy of all glory. We must practice this. Correct? We must practice this. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. If, if you're anybody, if, if you like to put Bible verses up in your house, this is an awesome one. Matter of fact, those who are raising children and teenagers particularly, go ahead and put this verse on their bathroom mirror so that they must read it every day. Amen? <clears throat> Some of the teenagers are squirming right now. Some of the parents are going, preach it! Amen? So, verse 2. Why should the nation say, where is their God? This one verse, this line, it, it helps us understand the context of this psalm. It indicates that pagan nations taunt God's people. Anybody ever face that taunt? It is a line reminiscent of, of really the satanic tactic of casting doubt that started it all. Questions, doubts, they, they belay the certainty of faith and the scriptures are clear that certain faith is the only faith that gives God glory. Remember when we were in Matthew's gospel when John the Baptist was sending a question to Jesus because John the Baptist was facing execution. John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus responds to his cousin, listen to the reports of what is happening. Are you certain in your faith? Any wavering faith is not worthy of me. Certain faith. Imagine being a captive in a foreign country. Imagine being sent into exile by your God where forms of worship are anything but what you're accustomed to. That's what's happening here in Psalm 115. Imagine hearing the worshipers of foreign deities questioning your worship practices. That's what's happening here in verse 2. Why should the nation say, where is their God? This is a psalm that perhaps most likely came out of that circumstance. Imagine that the questions turn to taunts. Where is your God? Has anybody ever challenged you with that? If they haven't, I promise you it's going to come. How do we respond? We do not respond in kind with snarky comments. We do not respond with aggression. We respond with pointing them to the faithfulness and the steadfast love of our Lord who is worthy of all glory. We don't have to fight because we're confident 
in our faith. We're confident in who God is. This type of doubt that can come against us can actually cause us to shift our expressions of glory from uh, toward God away to another place. Uh, even, even the expression of glory can be shifted to a place of doubt. Is God really here? Is God really who he says that he is? This is a strategic doubt. It's a strategy of the devil in causing us to question God's power. It is an attempt to show that God is weak and powerless and perhaps not real. You notice what's happening here? The, the, the opening verse is a praise to the Lord, and the reason that this praise is necessary is in verse 2. Why should the nation say, where is their God? It's a taunt. A taunt. But verse three is the response. Verse, if you highlight anything in your Bible, highlight and circle and put great big asterisks beside verse three. The response to this is our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That's God. That's the God worthy of our glory and praise. That's the God worthy of our prayer. That's the God worthy of all of our actions and our activities, all of our thoughts, everything that we are. Verse 3 sums it up. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And that really scares a lot of folks. God knows all that He pleases? I have no control? Nope. Let's take a look at what God pleases here. Because this one verse three helps us understand the rest of what's happening here. And verse three actually explains all of scripture as God reveals himself. He is doing all that he pleases from Genesis chapter one all the way to the end of Revelation. He's doing all that he pleases. As we worship this weekend, we have focused on the incarnation of our Lord. We focused on the worship of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. And if you recall last week, last Sunday, this incarnation is the greatest mystery of all miracles. It's what C.S. Lewis called the grand miracle. Do you remember that last week? It's what C.S. Lewis called the grand miracle. The virgin conception and the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who is the God-man. That's a phrase, that's a term that many people will say. Jesus is the God-man. It's one of the only, it's one of the simplest way to try to describe the divine nature and the human nature at once. It's the single greatest truth of the faith. It's the single greatest truth of Christianity. The incarnation is central to everything unique to Christianity. And without this incarnation, without this true event in true space and time, Christianity is no different than any other religious system. It's merely another system of morality. It's the incarnation that sets Christianity apart. It's exactly what God pleases to do. Let's let that sink in for a minute. Because we can't fathom how God and man can be the same Jesus. How does that work? It's what God pleased to do. <laughs> That's it. It's a mystery beyond our mystery. It's a grand miracle and is exactly what God pleases. Psalm 115 verse 3 helps us put into perspective, this is God's sovereignty. 
This is his sovereignty against the, the taunts of verse 2. Where is your God? God's going to show up in ways that the pagan nations can't figure out because that's how he pleases. The incarnation, Jesus Christ is born. Jesus, his son, is here. That is exactly God's plan. That is his pleasure to make that happen. And the nations can't fathom what's going on. Where's your God? He's what? He's in this carpenter from Nazareth? You're crazy. That's what the nations would say. Where's your God? Where is our God? Where is the one true God? Verse 3 tells us he is in the heavens, the realm of glory, the realm of light, the glory of heavenly objects, the glory of heavenly beings that look down upon the earth. This is where God is. Our God is in the heavens. It's what the ancient minds saw as they looked up into the starry night as in the sky. They saw a heavenly realm as the place of holy wonder and awe. Not a bunch of balls of gas out there millions of miles away. Secondly, I think most importantly in verse 3, not only is God in the heavens, He does all that He pleases. That means He's not limited in the heavens. That's an important point here. This truthful statement reminds us that God is not relegated to the heavens and He's not isolated from the earth. He's not isolated from us. God does all that He pleases, both in the heavens and in the earth. And we're going to see this here in the latter part of the psalm. God is not only sovereign in doing all that He pleases, God's actions oversee all that is. God's actions oversee all lives, and God does all that He wants in this created world. God oversees the heavens and the earth, and He accomplishes all that pleases Him. So what pleases the Lord? That's what we got to figure out here. What pleases the Lord? This psalm helps us see it. Verses 4 through 8 here contrast the lifeless nature of, of pagan gods and idols. Verses 4 through 8, in contrast with verses 9 through 15, you see verses 4 through 8 talking about the, the, the lifeless idols of the nations. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And verse 8 is important here. Those who make them become like them. Those who make dead idols become dead. You become what you worship. Amen? You become what you worship. If you worship dead idols, you will become dead yourself. If you worship the, 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 the fruit of your labor, if you worship what you make and what you build, you will become your own little God and it will be a dead existence because there is no living God other than the one true God. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So if, if, if we become like what we worship, verses 9 through 15 gives us some hope. Okay, verse, verse 9, because here's the contrast. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He's talking to two people here 
talking to the nation of Israel, the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's talking to his people that he has called to be his own, whom God has chosen and established as a nation. Why does God choose and establish Israel? Verse 3, he does all that he pleases. Pure and simple. (laughs) Okay? Verse 10, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. Who else is he talking to here? He's talking to the sons and the children of Aaron, those descendants of the first priest that God himself established, that the lineage of Aaron became his high priest. He's talking to both the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, and the house of Aaron, encouraging them, trust in the Lord. The Lord, verses 12 through 15, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. See that? Notice the contrast between worshiping idols and trusting the Lord. If we trust the Lord, what then do we become? We become more and more like Him, right? Why is God doing this? The concept here is that God does what he wants and he is in control of it all. And we must be reminded of that. If God pleases to do something grand, he does what he wants with a purpose. That's the next thing we need to understand here. The purposes of this psalm Help us search for what God is doing, what all that he pleases. If what God pleases is this grand decree, there is this idea in in, in the scriptures that God who is in control of all things, he, here's the big word that gets everybody upset, he predestines all things. But let's understand what's in this text. In this text, we're talking about a predestination that is not a select predestination. It is a divine decree, a grand plan that God establishes from the earliest of all eternity beyond what we can fathom is the beginning of eternity. So where we're going? He has already predestined all things. It is as he does all that he pleases. The great Reformed theologian B.B. Warfield helps us understand this concept here of a divine decree. Here's what he says. He says, throughout the Old Testament, behind the processes of nature, the march of history and the fortunes of each individual life alike, there is steadily kept in view the governing hand of God working out his preconceived plan, a plan broad enough to embrace the whole universe of things, minute enough to concern itself with the smallest details, and actualizing itself with inevitable certainty in every event that comes to pass. Notice what we see here in verse 13. He will bless those who fear the Lord, what? Both the small and the great. Everything that God pleases to do, is it it, it ranges from the smallest, minutest, insignificant thing to the most grand, large, big event that no one can miss. That's our God. 
You see that? And that's who we worship. That's who we sing praises to. And more importantly, what we see in the Old Testament particularly is that God is never this distant deity who has started the clock running or the mechanisms running, like winding up a toy and then just stands back and lets the world run. We see God intricately involved in every detail of every operation of everything that he has created. He is governing it all. He is not an isolated God. Matter of fact, the Old Testament Hebrew, I, I like to use the word, the sages of the Hebrew, <laughs> of the Hebrew canon, uh, they see God as person. Even in the Old Testament, God is person. He's, he's personable. He is real. He is intricate with all of his creation. He is never revealed in the Old Testament as a distant and forgetful God. He is always seen, and we see it even here in uh, Psalm 115, he is always seen as personal and acting with purpose. But when he acts, he does so with wisdom. He does so with a wise, sovereign control, unlike that of others, because he is infinitely perfect, and his divine decree has a grand purpose. Now, last week I got laughed at for throwing out a few theological terms. I'm going to give you one more here. Y'all ready for this one? It's called all of God's divine decree, all of his purposes is a grand teleology. Y'all ready for that word? Teleology is the idea of a grand purpose or a grand end in mind. What is the grand purpose that God is orchestrating and governing? There is a teleological purpose and end that everything leading up to it leads to it. I'm going to let your mind get blown right there. That's what we see in the Scriptures. There is a grand and divine purpose that God does as He pleases. Even involved in the smallest of details and the greatest of events. It all leads to his divine purpose and his divine pleasure. Amen? The psalmist here, along with many of the prophets, show the view that a a more purposeful governing of all things is God's good pleasure. And all that comes to pass, all that even has preexisted in God's purpose from eternity past is this idea of the divine purpose predetermining all courses of events. And it is not random. It has a path. It has a journey. And it is governed by our God. In Proverbs chapter 8, Solomon speaking of wisdom. This is wisdom speaking in Proverbs chapter 8. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. So even at the first, before all things were created, God's wisdom was there. So all that is created, the heavens and the earth that the psalmist speaks of here, there was a wise plan in its making. It wasn't just random. God had a purpose. 
So what is important here about Psalm 115, especially verse 3, when we read our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. We see here that God is sovereign, God is eternal, and God is all-encompassing, all-powerful, and that he ple- and that what he pleases is intricately orchestrated by him to accomplish. His divine decree, his divine plan, everything that God has brought into being, he made for a specific end. And he governs it all so that it shall attain this end. No deceit, no question of where is their God can throw this off. See where we are? Now, let's leave this up to the purpose here that we have today. It seems here that when we're talking about the incarnation around Christmas, when we're thinking about the events of Bethlehem, we strive to understand why God was pleased to usher in this type of an event. Why? Why does God, why is it, why does it please God? Why is it his good pleasure to enter into the human dilemma, to take upon himself what he did not have to take? Our sin. That was God's good pleasure to take on our sin nature in his son. See where we're headed here? If he is the Lord of heavens and earth, what's going on here? Let's look here at verses 14 through 16. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Verse 16, highlight this one. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. Now that'll blow your mind. What's he doing here? Wait a minute, I thought God was in control of all things. I thought God does all that he pleases. I thought God was in charge and governing every intricate thing that he has made. Well, what does he do here in verse 16? It was God's good pleasure to give the earth to the children of man. Now, many of us as parents are sitting here going, what was he thinking? Because if it was our good pleasure as parents to give our children something good that we know very well that they will destroy, what were we thinking? You see what God has done here? In his good pleasure, he gave the earth to, to human beings who had the potential to sin. And guess what they did? They sinned. It was God's good pleasure. What's he doing here? <laughs> it seems that the theme of the psalm rests upon us in verse 16. I think verse 16 kind of drives the point home. If God is in the heavens, he's there because of his good pleasure. Verse 16 shows us clearly that God possesses both the heavens and the earth. All that there is belongs to him. He holds possession of the heavens. They are the Lord's heavens. That's what verse 16 says. They are the Lord's heavens. But likewise, the earth is the possession of our Lord. God gives the earth to the children of man. This verse never implies that God gives up his possession or governance of the earth. Never once does that imply this. It it was God's good pleasure to give the earth to the children of man. But But does he give the responsibility? He does give the responsibility to man. He gives the responsibility of stewardship. As anyone who owns anything, you have a responsibility of stewardship, and that's what God was giving mankind. 
humanity made in the image of God. It was God's good pleasure to give them the responsibility and stewardship of this earth. Not the heavens, the earth. And what have we done? So it is God's good pleasure to step into the mess that we have made, (laughs) to still be the God that He is, to still be the sovereign Lord who governs all things, and to step in and take upon Himself the sin nature of humanity that God Himself does not possess. He takes it upon Himself so that it is now taken care of and atoned for. See that? Scripture, in particularly the Old Testament, is very clear that God's purpose is to establish His kingdom. That's what He's doing here. The kingdom of God is even the theme of the Old Testament. Then the history of God's interaction with His people reveals the theme of the kingdom of God from the very beginning of Genesis all the way through the end of uh, Malachi. God is establishing His kingdom even with rebellious, error-prone nation of Israel. (laughs) He's establishing His kingdom. What's more important here is that God is consistently represented here. His divine purposes are consistently represented here. His gracious creation is always in His control, even though He has given it to the children of man. In contrast, the kingdom of God is shown to never be the product of man's efforts. God is the one establishing the kingdom. Amen? That's what's happening. So what does verse 16 say to us? The children of man are the children of the offspring of Adam, humanity in general. That's who this is. And the psalmist concludes here with the crucial role that Israel has to praise the Lord. You want to know what our role as the children of man are here? Why has God given us what He has given us? It's so that we will give Him glory. Not make idols of our own making. We are to give God glory. That is why He has us here. That is His good pleasure. That is His purpose. Our role, our stewardship of the earth is to praise God in it. It's critical that God's chosen people honor His will here. God establishes His kingdom, how? Through us. Through His chosen people. Starting with Israel. Well, actually, you can go back further. Starting with with even Noah and Abraham and David and on and on and on, all the way up to Jesus Christ and now to His church, His chosen people. We are establishing His kingdom. And how are we doing this? Through the transformation of every sinful heart and every sinful soul into the image and the likeness of Christ. That's the establishment of the kingdom of God. That is God's good pleasure. The pagan gods, in contrast, they taunt God's people. They taunt this kingdom of God that's being established. They're taunting the governance of a living and all-powerful God. Whereas God's people give Him praise. You see that? The responsibility of the church is to carry this gospel that the incarnation of Jesus Christ has brought. Jesus has established the kingdom of God. Correct? 
So what is God's good pleasure? It is for his people to establish the kingdom of God as God is doing it through them. It pleases God to build his kingdom, and that kingdom is built in the renewed lives of the church, his people. That's our job. So how does this work out? Verse 16 does not mean at all that God has abandoned the earth. No, he's got a big plan still. And his plan was for his kingdom through us. The incarnation shows that humanity's fallen state and our, our failure of stewardship and dominion is actually healed by God's intervention. By healing the fallen state of mankind, by offering salvation to humanity, he is now also elevating his creation through that. You see what's happening? His loving restoration of man's state in Christ also restores the earth. It's because of this grand truth, this grand purpose, that I think verse 18 in closing is the most important. Actually, verse 17 and 18 summarize this whole psalm. Let's look at that. Verse 17, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. That's clearly referring to the pagan idols. Verse 18, but we... Notice, but we, who are we? Is that you? Are you involved in that? But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. The incarnation of our Savior Jesus Christ brings us life. If we are God's people, then we're not dead. Thank you, Joe. I want to say that one more time. If we are God's people, we are not dead. Yet we sit in God's church every Sunday morning like stoic dead idols. Thank you, Joe. I won't start throwing candy out from the pulpit to everyone who responds. Would that be a good reward for you? Yeah, Tanner's up here. Yeah, I can't. The kids up front. Give me candy. All right. You're going to have to start saying hearty amens. We'll start throwing out candy. Let's let's close with this thought here, though. If we're God's chosen people, we're not dead. We do not honor dead gods or dead idols. We bless the Lord with our praise, which is God's good pleasure. I want to close with this. If you'll turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, we're going to close with this passage. We're not going to... We're not going to do an exegesis of this. That's another sermon, okay? So you're not facing a second sermon right now. We're going to close with 1 Chronicles chapter 29. This is David praying over the, this is King David leading a worship service, okay? He is, he's leading the assembly of God's people before, uh, before the throne of God. <coughs> Excuse me. I think David's prayer here is a great echo and a foreshadowing of Psalm 115. We're probably very well connected here. Let's read David's prayer, First uh, uh, Chronicles chapter 29, beginning in verse 10, and we're going to read through verse 18. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. See that theme? Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. There's his sovereignty and his power. Verse 12. 
Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Verse 13, and now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Isn't he worthy of praise? Let's keep reading. Verse 14, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly. For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. Verse 16, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes, (laughs) excuse me, comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. You see, worship is a free act. It is an act of our will. We are not manipulated by God in doing so. We freely give Him praise and joy. Verse 18, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. So what is David saying here? And this, I think, helps us summarize what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 115. Perhaps, David or perhaps someone in the, in the spirit of David. David's prayer here is giving glory, as first of all, acknowledging that all the heavens and the earth belong to God. Everything. I mean, that's the first step of humility. Nothing is ours. All of it, all the heavens and all the earth is God's. Secondly, his prayer here shows us that we are unable to offer praise We're unable to offer praise apart from God's provision. But then when we do, (laughs) we willingly praise. Apart from God's provision, we are unable to praise, yet in His provision, we willingly do. See that? We willingly build God's house, but we do so only out of the abundant blessings from Him. So Christians, as we are wrapping up a year, as we're wrapping up 2021, as we are recovering from the Christmas celebrations and the Christmas busyness and whatever vacation or downtime you thought you would get kind of went out the window, as we go into a new year, this is my prayer for us. How does the psalmist in 115 and David's prayer in 1 Chronicles 29 shape our thoughts and our actions and our purposes moving forward. Is God's grand design guiding and directing all that we think, all that we say, all that we do? And are we willingly and joyfully giving Him praise for that. You see, God steps into 
fallen humanity. The birth of His Son ushered in a new covenant. (laughs) It ushered in the completion of all the promises of before that God would redeem and restore His people for the purpose of His good pleasure (laughs) and for the purpose of God's grand design and His grand purpose for the heavens and the earth. We have been given the gift of creativity. We build a lot of stuff as human beings. The question is, what do we build it for? Are we building it for God's glory and God's purposes as He provides for that glory? Or are we building something of our own making and our own idols to glorify us? That's the conclusion here to this thought. As we're going into a new year, what's your prayer? What is your thinking? What is your purpose? What is our purpose as a church? If you have not heard the news, I think everyone here already has, we have a closing scheduled this week on Friday, December 31st on this building. And God has provided a very gracious way for us to stay here in this place. If you would have asked me, are we ready to buy a building? I said, absolutely not. Matter of fact, back in September when the landlord approached me about it, I said, we can't do it. But the Lord has provided a way for us to stay here. The question is, what's coming? Are we staying here in this location for God's glory and for God's purposes and for God's good pleasure? Amen. So as we move forward into a new year, we're moving into a new level of stewardship, a new level of responsibility. Do we have this prayer on our hearts? Nathan, come on forward. Father God, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for your word. And we are here this morning simply because we love you and we adore you and we worship you. And without your provision, without your Son, Jesus Christ, for us, we would not have anything to worship and nothing to glorify. And we thank you for that truth. We thank you, God, that you are not distant in the heavens apart from us. You are Lord and sovereign over the heavens and the earth. And even though you have granted us sovereign uh, dominion over this earth, you are sovereign even over that. Dear God, you are in control of all things. We thank you for that. We ask for your blessings. We ask for your wisdom. We ask for your guidance. And God, I ask that you would stir up within us a song of praise. Use us, Father, for your glory and use us for your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.